Hi, I'm Lydia Mudd, and our scripture reading today is both from the Old and New Testament. Our first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of one who announces good things, who proclaims peace and brings news of good things, by announcing God's salvation, who who says to Zion, your God reigns as king. A voice, your watchmen lift their voice, together they sing for joy, and with their own eyes they'll see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break into singing all together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. The, and Zechariah was filled with Holy Spirit and prophesied about his son John. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he visited his people and redeemed them from slavery. He raised up the power of his salvation for us within the royal house of his servant David. Just as he promised through his holy prophets of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. He acted in mercy as with our fathers and remembered his ho- and he remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he solemnly gave to Abraham our father who allowed to allow us to worship him without fear because we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies to worship with holiness and justice before him all our days and you little child will be known as a prophet of God most high because you'll go before the Lord to prepare his paths and give a knowledge of God's salvation to his people by forgiving their sins that's because of our God's deep heart of compassion which will visit us with a new dawn from on high to shine light on those who sit in darkness and death's shadow and lead our feet straight to the path of peace. I hope that you um, have gotten a copy of the, um, the scripture reading that you just heard Lydia read so beautifully for us, uh, along with uh, notes for the message this morning. If you haven't, uh, you may raise your hand and someone from uh, the back will will bring bring one up to you. Uh, that would be good. Uh, are we all filled with sage and onions and uh, from dressing and um, World Cup and uh, maybe watching Best in Show or something like that on Thanksgiving? That's what our family does. Uh, and uh, and so on. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Thank you so much for, for being here this morning and sharing in this time of worship. And thanks to the praise team for leading us uh, so beautifully in, in worship to, uh, uh, today. Please, I just want to reemphasize, uh, you know, think about this grace upon grace, the gifts that we can assemble for, for people that are just living right on the edge, uh, people who are homeless or marginally uh, have some place to live and all of that. Please participate in that. You can go just to, you know, there's a list on Amazon. It's easy as pie, uh, so to speak. And uh, you can have it, it will be sent directly to the church to share in that, those, um, those gifts. Um, as has been emphasized with the lighting of the beautiful uh, candle and the uh, Advent wreath here, this is the beginning of the traditional uh, season of, of Advent. It's a traditional uh, period of the year in the Christian 
calendar, the liturgical calendar, that focuses on Jesus coming into, uh, into the world. It is not something that necessarily for all of us is, uh, is something that we're necessarily used to, but it's a time of, of meditating on what is a, a central element of, of, the, um, of the understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he's all about. And it gives us a time that is in which uh, the whole uh, world is, at least to some degree, looking at, um, at Jesus for us focusing our attention on things that matter a great deal to us. Namely, what does it mean that Jesus came into, uh, into our, our world? Um, we, we, as, uh, as Emily said, we, we started a, a class this morning. Uh, uh, starting up a class that's been off since March of 2020 uh, because of COVID and uh, restarting it. Thanks so much to all of those who, who came and shared in that startup, and I want to invite anybody else that, that uh, can to, to come. We'll be looking more at the whole story that, of, of Jesus' birth as it's given in the Gospel of Matthew uh, uh, next time and the, the meaning of that and, and, and interpreting it and so on. Uh, as pretty much everybody knows, nobody knows when exactly Jesus was born. We don't know his birthday, you know, or what. There's just no way to figure it out. There's no way to, to understand it exactly and come up with any particular date. Rather, Christmas and then the Advent season that grows around it was a date that was chosen. It was chosen because of its significance, mostly around the idea of the winter solstice and the time of the, of the world being at its darkest moment and then light beginning to rise again, to, to emerge again. <clears throat> and that uh, made a nice analogy with the rising of, the, of God's sun, the dawn that breaks, as in this one of the scriptures that we uh, just heard read. That's, that's there. It also, in that ancient uh, time in the 400s, uh, 300s, uh, and, and then on, on into the 400s uh, A.D., when, when these, the, this set, set of celebrations was beginning, it also made a nice correspondence to what was already a big celebration in the Roman Empire, namely the time of Saturnalia. And it, it allowed Christians to t sort of take all of that celebration and and sort of recast it, to re-baptize it, as sometimes people say, uh, so that it was something that could be focused on things that were crucial to the, to the gospel, the good news. And so all kinds of, of, of traditions grew up around it, as all of us are, are familiar with, things that brought in Yule logs and Yule trees and Santa Claus and Saint Nicholas and all of those kinds of things that that uh, came became part of the uh, the, the great uh, tradition. But the Gospels tell of Jesus' advent because of its core, because of what it's about. Namely, the technical term for it is the incarnation. Carne is the, the Latin word for flesh, and incarnation is the becoming flesh. The, 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 from that line in the, in the um, Gospel of John that we'll look at a little bit later on, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Human nature 
united with God's reality in Jesus. You and me united with God in Jesus. So that Jesus is both us and God. Truly God, as the, the old creeds say, truly God and truly man. Completely God, completely human. And both of those together at the very same time. And so emphasizing what a, an astonishing thing this is, how impossible on one level it is, how difficult it is for us to even imagine it, and yet it is affirmed as something that God has done. Jesus is both us, human beings, and God. And the event of Advent continues. It continues through Jesus' whole, whole story, the whole story of the Gospels. That the, the, through Jesus' growth, through, through his ministry, through his teaching, of course, ultimately through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, beyond that, through his sending of the Holy Spirit, through the life of the church, and on and on until the end. In Jesus, the God whom I can imagine, of course, but I can't really imagine the God who is beyond all of our creation, who, as we think about the vastness of all of creation, however vast one imagines it, if one thinks of all of the sort of the, the, the universe that we can see, or if one imagines a multiverse, whatever it is, God is there and pervading it and beyond it. That God, beyond all imagination, in his absolute greatness is great enough also to know the small or at least the relatively small actually he can know the very 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 small he invented those subatomic particles and all of that but we are also small that god beyond all imagination in this advent seeks for us human creatures he wants a relationship with us so far as we know of course God may be doing all kinds of things throughout all of his gigantic vastness of this universe but at least so far as we know we are the only beings with the capabilities of having a relationship of love and trust or rebellion and against uh, against the God uh, who created us and so he creates us and seeks for a relationship with us. And he creates a way for us to be united with him. To be united in his own life. Perhaps the greatest expression of all this. Are those first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. That I referred to just a moment ago. It's a prose poem. Of the wonder and reality of what happened in Jesus. And it, the, the idea of both the reality of it and just the inexpressible wonder of it all just permeates through every, every line. Listen as John, <clears throat> I think when it's not, not bad to say that he just pours out his astonishment at this event, uh, this reality of what, what has actually happened. He starts, well-known words, just follow with me th and just meditate on them. In the beginning, so we go all the way back, was the 
word. This word was directly linked to God. This is a slightly paraphrased translation, if you don't mind. This word was directly linked to God. Indeed, the word was God's self. This word was in the beginning as God expressed God's self. Everything came into existence through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being. What came into being in him was life. And that life was the light illuminating human beings. And that light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has neither grasped nor overpowered it. The true light that illumines every human being was coming into the cosmos. The light was already present in the world. Indeed, the whole world came into being through him. But the cosmos didn't recognize him. He came among, those, among things that were his very own, and people that were his own didn't accept him. But all who did receive him, to them he granted authority to become God's children, to those who trust in his identity. These were begotten not from blood, nor from a fleshly will, nor from a man's will, but rather they were begotten from God. Now that word became flesh and set his tent, his tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, a glory such as belongs to a father's one and only, full of grace and truth. For we all receive from his fullness. It's been grace on top of grace. As the law was given through Moses, this grace and truth came through Jesus, the anointed king, Jesus Christ. No one has seen God ever. The one and only, himself God, who is in the heart of the Father, has made God known. Well, we could just spend the morning going back and forth over and over and over that and still have uh, a lot to think about by the end of whatever time we would spend. But this is just an encapsulation of where and the, the range in which all of this is going. This is the ongoing climax to all of Scripture. That's the reason he starts with in the beginning and moves it all the way along to what we ourselves have experienced. It's the ongoing climax to all of Scripture. Advent <clears throat> continues on and on and on and on as that one comes into this cosmos, as he encounters this cosmos in which that we're a part of, in which some receive him. And, and in that process, they are begotten from God and share in his, in his life. And it continues on and on and on until God renews creation completely. Now the idea of incarnation 
when you come to when you think about reading from the reading the Old Testament, can certainly seem something that is radically new, radically even unexpected. We believe in one God, and there is no participation of any human being in that one God. But the Gospels and Jesus himself show the deep roots of this particular event rooted in the whole complex story of Scripture, not as something that's just natural for all of us and that we can draw on some sort of authentic inner self in in all of it, but something that happened, that God did, that happened in Jesus. And so the scripture reading that you just heard just a few minutes ago from Lydia points to that great, great example of that continuation, those roots growing down into the into the the scriptures. We started, as as Lydia read it, from words of Isaiah. Isaiah in the time of the exile. This is maybe about 540 or so, somewhere in there, years before Jesus, before the time of Jesus, before the time of John the Baptist. So the words that we read when we read Isaiah 52 as part of our scripture, it's on the front side of your, your sheet there, These are old, old words in Jesus' time. They've been there for 500 years. And they go back deep into the darkest days of that remnant southern kingdom. If you remember something of the story of ancient Israel, how it had been, Israel had been divided into the north, ten tribes into the south, Two tribes, really one big tribe and little pieces of other tribes, Judah being the the southern part. And that northern kingdom, all ten tribes had been destroyed by Assyria, and such hopelessness broke out. They could hardly envision how things could get any worse. But then also, not quickly, but relatively soon, if we might say it that way, the southern kingdom as well. The southern kingdom that trusted in a promise that God had made to Abraham that there would always be a king to sit on David's throne. They got themselves, made themselves so alienated from God that they crushed that promise. And they had no king. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the new king of Babylon. The nation was destroyed, at least functioning as a nation. The king was killed. The one, the remaining little puppet king was taken into exile. And uh, so there was no king over Judah. All of the ruling classes, the business classes, if we can say it that way, those that were more educated were shipped off to Babylon. The people went through their darkest days. And they recognized that it was a kind of self-exile from God, as you read numerous passages of the, of the Old Testament, asking for forgiveness of their sins that have led them into that place. A kind of exile that they brought on themselves by turning away. And yet God never gives up on them. And so Isaiah and the exile is there after the first years of that exile have passed. 
And he plants a hope, a hope for them. Even though they're still caught in that, in that exile, there is a hope both physically that there can be a renewal of the actual kingdom, but also of God's presence with them, a promise of God's renewal. Is it near? Some of it's near. Is it far? Some of it's far. Because the problem doesn't get solved very quickly because of human brokenness. But God himself is with them. And as Isaiah says, God is himself coming. God is returning in redeeming grace to Israel. Listen again, Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of one, I wouldn't say it that way, that doesn't make very good poetry for modern English, does it? But that was evidently quite a good phrase in the poetry of ancient Hebrew. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of one who announces good news, who proclaims peace and brings news of good things. They've had so much bad by announcing God's salvation who says to Zion, that's Jerusalem, your God reigns as king. Ah, Israel doesn't have a king. They've lost their kings. They're a little sub-province of Persia at their best. Your God reigns as king. Isaiah says, a voice, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy. For with their own eyes, they'll see the return of Yahweh, that ancient name for God, Yahweh to Zion. Break into singing all together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Jerusalem was lying in ruins when Isaiah wrote this. Yahweh has bared his holy arm, like rolling up his sleeves all the way, ready to, to do things, to work. To, he's bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. As I said, by the time of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist, more than five centuries have passed. But that hope is still breathing, vibrant within ancient Israel. Yes, people came back not too long after Isaiah wrote these words. Within a generation, some came back. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. It was a lot smaller than Solomon had built the temple. And, and the, the, the city was still largely in ruins, and the walls were broken down. Another generation, and yes, they rebuilt the walls after a fashion. But they were always still under the thumb of some foreign ruler. It kept on going that way. They were under the Persians. They were under the Greeks. They were under the Egyptians. They were under the Syrians. Numerous groupings within Israel had tried to think out, where is this going? When is this prophecy? All those prophecies from Isaiah, so beautiful, so powerful, so entrancing. 
How are they going to, be wo- to, to come to pass? And as you read Zechariah's prophecy about John, uh, his infant, who is going to become John the Baptist later on, you can hear the words of Isaiah and other passages from Isaiah and other prophets as well embedded in what he has to say. And we learn also that there are people like Simeon and Anna living in, around, in and around the temple in Jerusalem, this new, newly built, well, old now temple, the small temple that had been rebuilt, but then now it's been really renovated by Herod the Great as a huge, massive marble and gold temple in Jerusalem who knew, though, that they still were in exile. They were waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting for the prophecies that Isaiah had pointed to to come true. And so Zechariah, as he holds in his arms this little baby in the naming ceremony where he names him John, as the angel had instructed him, and his, his mouth is opened and he can speak and he prophesies. And just listen, if you think about what was there in Isaiah or if you maybe open your Bible to Isaiah 52 or look at the, at the front side of your sheet there and just notice how he doesn't exactly quote Isaiah very much, but he echoes those hopes, those promises over and over again. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied about his son John. Blessed is the Lord. That's the word that in Greek gets translated for Yahweh. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he visited his people. He has come. He has arrived. He has visited his people and redeemed them from slavery. It's sort of like the way it was with Isaiah there in the midst of the exile. Israel's still under the thumb of Rome. But as Zechariah sees it as a prophet, as he sees John there lying on his lap, as he realizes what John is pointing to, what his existence is pointing to, he realizes that this is an event that is flowing out from God's promises and is happening. He has visited his people and redeemed them from slavery. He raised up the power of his salvation for us within the royal house of his servant David. There hadn't been a Davidic king uh, since about 610 B.C., since Josiah got killed. That was really independent, not one that was of David's line. And so now within that promise to David of an anointed king, Now it's being fulfilled. Just as he promised through the holy prophets of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. Notice the enemies and the hands of all who hate us are not defined. It doesn't say to free us from the Romans, but what is is really destroying our lives? What is it that's ruining who we are? He's given the way of salvation for that. He's acted in mercy as with our fathers, and he remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he solemnly gave to Abraham, our father, that promise 
that I will make of you a great nation in you and in your descendants. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise that he gave to Abraham, our, our father, and the way in which that was elaborated and as it was given again and again and again to allow us to worship him without fear because we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies to worship with holiness and justice before him all our days. And you, little child, will be known as a prophet of God Most High because you'll go before the Lord, that's again the Greek word that's translated for Yahweh, but now as we know it within this story, it's also the word that's going to refer to Jesus as Lord. You're, you're going to go before the Lord, before God, to prepare his paths and to give a knowledge of God's salvation to his people by forgiving their sins. That's because of our God's deep heart of compassion, with, which will visit us with a new dawn from on high to shine light on those who sit in darkness and death's shadow and lead our feet straight into the path of peace. Oh, waiting, waiting, waiting for so long. God's relationship with humanity unfolds across the centuries. Back before Isaiah, back to Abraham, across so many things, down to these times and on beyond, always interacting with human brokenness. Through the giving of the law, through kings, through prophets, through the poets, through, through the temple, through the priests, through national destruction, through exile, through renewal, on and on. And when it comes down, ultimately, still nobody had put all of this together. And it comes to Jesus himself to weave together the scriptures, along with new images, to help us to see where God had been going all along, all through that whole circuitous story that takes in all of these many scriptures. It goes all the way back, as John says, in the beginning. Well, with, as far as human beings are concerned, that goes back to, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And what's characteristic? That's the story of the creation of humanity. And what's characteristic? Well, God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Human image. God's image. God creates the human being in God's image. And then as this story comes to its fruition, God comes in that image. He takes on humanity. It's part of the story that, that starts right, right after that creation 
and goes all the way through to the time of Jesus is that of human exile. Adam and Eve in the garden are, have to leave the garden. They are outside the garden. Abraham has to leave his country. He goes to a new country. They, the uh, descendants of Abraham go down into Egypt and spend centuries in exile in Egypt. The northern tribes, as we've already talked about, are carried away by Assyria into exile. The Babylonians carry off the southern, uh, the southern uh, tribes into Babylonian exile. It happened over and over and over, the exile. Even when they come back, they're still under the thumb of the Greeks or the Romans and so forth. Exile, exile, exile. When are we coming home? But within that, there's also this promise that we just mentioned about to, to Abraham. God, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will, I, and this is before Abraham has done anything at all. I will make, this is just God's promise. God's grace, a promise of grace that is a promise for Abraham and for you, me, for every human being. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The paths of covenant that God works through in this whole story. Take us through the law. Take us through wisdom literature. Take us through poetry. Take us through worship. Take us through the building of the temple and all of that. Take us through the promise to David of an anointed king. Take us through national favor. Still, God is coming. God is king, as our scripture in Isaiah 52 says. And he is, that again, that <clears throat> image that is Proper to Hebrew poetry. He has bared his arm. He has bared his arm to show that it's him. To show that he's present there. And so in Isaiah 52 it talks about bearing that arm before all the nations. And as one moves into Isaiah 53. The prophet asks the question. Who's seen that bared arm of the Lord? Who has seen the Lord's actual presence among us? Because when that arm was bared, it turned out to be a servant who was suffering. As Isaiah says, who believed what we've reported? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, but he had no form, no majesty. We looked at his appearance. And did not desire him. He was despised and rejected by people. A man who suffered and knew pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we thought him worthless. But surely he has borne our pains, carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him smitten, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced by for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was punishment for the sake of our peace. And by his wounds we are healed. 
How does it all go together? Against all the little human gods who in Daniel are portrayed as though they were monsters that come up out of the sea because human beings experience them as so powerful. In Daniel's vision, they are just little things that can be swept out of the way. God comes as a son of the human who sits on the throne with God, Daniel 7, 14, and the verses all around that. People thought that the gulf between God and human could not be crossed because humans die and death ends human hope. Every human effort, even toward piety, toward godliness, is always, to some extent, a failure. But in Jesus, God does the impossible. God the creator, and we were talking about this this morning in our class, God the creator becomes a creature sharing our human suffering and death. He creates something that has never been, that we cannot even imagine how it could be, bringing together God's own self and our created selves in this amazing reality, sharing human suffering, sharing also joys, but sharing suffering and betrayal and injustice all the way to death in order to create something radically new, to create new life. It's so important, I believe, to to see that there is a fundamental unity of Jesus' story from his birth that we celebrate at Advent to his death and all that's beyond it, his resurrection and so forth. But to link together, especially for modern people, that birth and death is crucial. Because some popular forms of talking about Jesus, especially when it comes to his crucifixion and, and his atonement, they seem almost to set Jesus over against God. God's righteous wrath requires that all people as sinners be punished. And Jesus intervenes to to stop God's wrath by taking it on himself or having it imposed on him as God sends him to take that wrath. No, no. Jesus on the cross is the very embodiment of God's love. That this passage there on the back side of your sheet from Philippians, the second chapter, that gives a hymn of Advent, truly a hymn of Advent, as Paul gives it, it teaches it evidently as they sang it in churches at that time. But it's a hymn of Advent, of incarnation, but also the cross and resurrection and exaltation. Paul introduces it as a longer introduction, but he says, I want you to think this. Think about this. Think this in yourselves as a community, which also means thinking it in anointed King Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who, and then he begins to talk about this, though he was indeed in God's form, did not consider that equality with God as a thing to be exploited. Rather, he emptied himself by taking a slave's form. That's Christmas. (laughs) 
That's not exactly the way we would describe it in for Christmas, would we? We'd much rather have the cute baby. But Paul sees, wants us to notice just what a sacrifice it is for him to come among us by taking a slave's form, by coming to be in the likeness of humans. As humans were created in the likeness of God, now God comes in the likeness of humans. And when he was found in shape as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has both highly exalted him and graced him with the name that is above every name, that, so that in Jesus' name every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus, anointed king, is Lord, is uh, Yahweh, is God, revealing God the Father's glory. How do I know who this God that's beyond all imagining, beyond all the galaxies, beyond all things, under, beneath, through everything, how do I know who he is and what he's like? Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In Jesus, God comes seeking us. God comes seeking us. Jesus dies for us, not in the sense of taking on God's inflicted punishment, but in the sense of taking into God's self all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our death, so that we can realize God's love and live as God's beloved children, begotten by God. Jesus' advent is God's advent. It is our advent. It is that radical new hope. It is truly the turning of the ages. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know all the stuff that's in our lives. So many things, so many concerns, so many pains that we have. We can look back to Isaiah's time and imagine the sense of trouble that people felt. We can think back to Zechariah and John the Baptist's time, Jesus' time, and the thumb of Rome down on them, the boot heel of Rome down on them. We know the oppressiveness of power and violence, of loss, of disorientation, of people in exile fleeing their homes. We see it in our world just as much. And we listen to this that you have done. And we share with those feelings of the prophets long ago the challenge that it is for us to see what you have done. It does not come in the form that our minds are trained to recognize. 
it challenges us to see the world differently, to see ourselves differently, to know ourselves as your beloved children, to see a fullness in all of reality that we normally just simply are blind to. Help us, Heavenly Father, to open our eyes to see, to recognize the advent for what it is, this turning of the ages, this union of us, little broken, sinful, but also joyful and longing us with you, with who you are beyond all our imagination. To know the richness of it, the beauty of it, the challenge of it. To live within that hope and to allow those words to ring through us again and again and again. Help us, Father, in this season that we may recognize our own Advent, your Advent in Jesus' Advent and that we may rejoice in who you have called us to be by your creative power, creative at the beginning of all things and creative in Jesus' resurrection and creative in our lives, creative in our community, creative in a new world that you will give when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Help us. Help us to be Advent people. In the name of that Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we share together words of benediction? I'm simply going to take words from the Gospel of John that we read early on. Now, that word became flesh and set his tent among us. And we beheld his glory, a glory such as belongs to a father's one and only, full of grace and truth. For we all receive from his fullness. It's been grace on top of grace. As the law was given through Moses, this grace and truth came through Jesus, the anointed king. No one has seen God ever. The one and only, himself God, who is in the heart of the Father, he has made God known. Greet one another and go forth to serve. <laughs>